This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning. Um, I'm very thankful to be here, to have been invited by Carol Bagley to speak about my um, the topic I love most, about light. In the past, sunlight was regarded as a divine power. In some cultures, the Holy Sun was even equated to God. Nowadays, sunlight is not fashionable anymore. Some experts even try to ban the tan. Others work on restrictions. The U.S. Surgeon General issues a call to action on UV and tanning. How can we deal with these dark clouds in a formerly sunny sky? Knowing more details about the past can help us to adjust and normalize the extreme positions of the no-sun policy advocated by the WHO, the anti-cancer associations, and many dermatologists. How could it happen that holy sunlight, especially the UV content, is classified by the World Health Organization as a class one carcinogen. I would like to share some of my thoughts and insights with you, hoping that it promotes better understanding of the magical entanglement between life and light. And I hope that I can point out some aspects which explain better why most humans love the sunlight and seek for it. Um, First, the disclosures. The author operates as consultant for JK Holding in Germany, JW Holding, and Taylor Lux uh, in both, all three companies in Germany. When we look at this cat, um, we can learn that all plants and animals know exactly how much sunlight is good for them. Plants close or turn away their leaves and tilt their molecular light harvesting zones. Animals seek the shadow and protect themselves by wearing a fur. Humans lost their furry skin, which meant we had to develop a completely new concept of skin, which intrinsically is not protected from solar radiation by hair, which carries pigments as melanin, for example. So the human skin is very, very complicated, and we find no other creature on this planet with uh, comparable complexity of the um, skin structures. And this I want to point out um, so that you can keep in mind that we have to be careful if we want to transpose Um, findings from animal experiments, for example, to the human condition or to the human skin, because you cannot compare. Our skin is beyond comparison. We already had some insights to what happened in the past, and why should we look into the past? First, uh, our ancestors and the ancestral um, scientists as well 
they were masters of phenomenology. So they didn't know about the cells inside before the microscope was invented, but what happened outside was pretty clear, and they were masters in describing what happened. And um, in the past, the scientists could make experiments which would never pass the ethics committee nowadays. But we should keep in mind that these experiments have been performed. And if they have different findings in the past compared to what we find today, we have to ask ourselves not what did they wrong. We should ask ourselves what changed, for example, in our environment and my idea is to bring together the, the findings from the past and the latest um, knowledge from contemporary science um, in order to, to get a kind of full-spectrum understanding about our functions and our connection um, regarding sunlight and artificial light as well, by the way. So this slide summarizes the, the, the different aspects. Sunlight provides rhythmical alternation of day and night. It's the primordial light source for vision processes and therefore the precondition for ocular function. Culture and religion transferred behavioral rules for exposition to sunlight according to the local environmental conditions. So here we find a difference already. We cannot issue globalized sun behavior rules because they, the behavioral rules depend on your personal risk profile, on your personal equipment in order to cope with the sun. And what culture and religion provided in the former days in a way gets lost in our modern world since we are not bound to our ancestral homeland anymore. Sunlight helped controlling germs in human habitats and on human skin as well. For example, this has been used in ancient Egypt. The systematic use of sunlight for medical purposes is reported from ancient Greece and Arabia. Natural and artificial UV was the most successful treatment modality against diseases of darkness until the 1950s. Here we see that some examples uh, of, of sun or uh, solar deities, most ancient religions had a place for the sun. Often the sun was the highest deity, Religious rituals often conveyed the local sun behavior rules. The length of a prayer, for example, defined the duration of sun exposure. Dress codes provided protection from solar radiation. One example, when Herodot, um, he was traveling the Mediterranean area in the 6th century before Christ, um, he visited the place where the skulls of the death, deaths from uh, the Battle of Pelusium were stored. And he found a massive difference between the Egyptian skulls. They were robust 
and quite thick, and you could damage the, the Persian skulls with little stones. So this is the first idea or the first report from the past that there was a connection between sunlight and the robustness of, of bones in the human system because this was what Herodot was already reasoning, that the sunlight hardens the bones, the skulls, and... He thought, yeah, the Egyptians, they shave their heads, they, have, they, they pray to the sun, they have naked skin, and the Persians, they would wear large heads and protect themselves from the solar irradiation. So he was the first to, to get an idea about things we later learned from vitamin D. <clears throat> so our ancestors could get from the sun, to, just to summarize orientation space, in time, in space, in, and religion, culture, light hygiene, light diet, and they knew how to deal with the sun in order to maintain their health. Today, many of us get only bashing of sunlight. This used to be completely different, as we already have seen, but we don't have to look back to ancient Egypt even if we skip 2,500 years, we can assert that sun worshipping existed less than 100 years ago, or should I say accepted sun worshipping. Living in the past often meant suffering from diseases of darkness. What are these diseases of darkness and where do they come from? Last question first. Mankind learned to handle these energy forms, you can see here King Steam and King Coal. The little baby is the electricity. The industrialization in the 18th century led to urbanization. People started to work and live in cities. The cities had dirt in the air. The smog reduced sunlight. The dirt came from burning the coal, so in a way transforming coal via light into other types of energy, produced dirt and smog um, in the air over the cities, and um, narrow apartment blocks jammed humans together like stable rabbits, reducing their access to sunlight even more. And here is the answer to the first question, what are diseases of darkness? rickets on the left, and tuberculosis on the right. The population group which suffered most from the city life were the children. They couldn't develop strong and healthy bones and were stigmatized for their whole lives. At that time, physicians had no ideas about the mechanisms, but they started to take the lack of sunlight into consideration because the little patients would recover if they were brought back into nature and sunlight. But children not only suffered from rickets. Tuberculosis was another threat to the population affecting all ages and spreading its devastating wings over the civilized world. Here we see Niels Rüberg Finsen. This is the man who started to investigate the effects of sunlight scientifically. His research brought him the Nobel Prize Award for Medicine and Physiology in 1903, 
mainly because he had discovered a method of treating the skin manifestation of tuberculosis, a disease called lupus vulgaris. And in this timeline, you can see that he discovered or developed a red light treatment of smallpox. And uh, in literature, you often find that he did some kind of colored, color therapy because he used the red light um, to keep the um, patients in rooms which were um, kept apart from sunlight. So what he already had understood, that the shorter wavelengths of light would induce inflammation processes in the patients um, suffering from smallpox. And he found out that if he would eliminate the shorter wavelengths, the inflammation would not occur, and so the patients could heal, could, could um, regain their health uh, in a timeline of two weeks or so. And this was the first time when, in Europe, medic medical uh, professionals would register the name of Niels Rüberg Finsen because his findings would help them to fight the smallpox epidemies. In a way, this led the, the, the idea that the shorter wavelengths can induce inflammation led him to the treatment of lupus vulgaris, and this was the reason for the Nobel Prize he was rewarded with. He discovered three basic principles, and when I say research, and thorough research. What did he do? He, for example, compressed the earlobe of his, of his fiancée and tried out what happened in terms of penetration depths of different wavelengths and things like that. He would take black ink and put it on his underarm, expose it to sunlight, and look at the, look, he would look at the difference between the blackened area and the naked ones. And then he changed the area of, of ink and exactly described what happened. So this was the kind of research, um, phenomenology, phenomenological research Finson did. And he understood that light can penetrate the skin, it can kill bacteria, he knew this from Downs and Blunt several years before. These Englishmen had discovered that they could kill germs by using ultraviolet light. And that light can set the skin into a state of inflammation, especially the short wavelength part of the spectrum. And if you want to get an idea about this kind of inflammation, just think about a sunburn who experienced a sunburn in this audience. So you didn't know about uh, how to deal with the sun. Uh, maybe your parents didn't tell you, and I think this is something we could do better. For example, how long does it take from the overdosage, point of overdose, and the point where you can feel that you got the overdose? What are we talking about? Minutes? two hours to four hours. The dermatologist reads the erythemal reaction 
after four, eight hours, after 24 hours, and so on. So it's a delayed process, and if we don't tell our children that they have to step out of the sun before they feel they have been burned, burned then we could do it better. Um, you already saw some slides of the treatment method Finson was, uh, uh, had developed against the skin manifestation of uh, tuberculosis. This is the treatment of uh, lupus vulgaris in two cases. Phototherapy was better than surgical intervention or radiotherapy, which were the other options, therapeutical options these days. It was the state-of-the-art treatment in these days. And now I will show you the treatment, how it was performed. These nurses, Finson called them light elves, used concentrated sunlight, which was focused via quartz lenses onto the affected area of the skin using these handles with hollow chambers covered on both sides with a quartz crystal lens. The, these com the compression of the irradiated skin improved light penetration significantly. The two fittings were used for connecting flexible tubes conducting the cooling water in order to prevent thermal skin burns. This kind of treatment worked perfectly well, as you could tell from the before and after pictures. But in Copenhagen, only 30 days throughout the whole year provided enough sunlight to perform this kind of therapy. This finding concerns most areas where people live in northern latitudes. So maybe we have to take artificial radiation in consideration as well for parts of the population who are not privileged in a way that they can step out into sunlight when the sun is up. Since Finson had thousands of patients seeking for treatment, he invented the treatment of lupus vulgaris using electrical carbon arc lamps. This, his work was like a spark which started a movement in medicine in the whole Western world called phototherapy. I would like to show you some more examples here. We see August Rollier in Switzerland. Finson's hype, light hype, promoted the heliotherapy in the mountain heights. And you could do the heliotherapy throughout the year. This man was to become the master of modern heliotherapy, the sun doctor. This little patient suffered from tuberculosis as well, but not the skin manifestation. In his case, the whole body was affected systemically. When this boy came to Rollier, his prognosis was quite bad. Untreated, he wouldn't have survived the next few weeks. Here you can see him after 18 months, this is the same boy, tanned, healthy, and well-nourished. And this chart explains a lot about the technique of heliotherapy. When you try to understand what Rollier did, he started to treat the feet the first day for five minutes. And then he put the patient back into the room.
next day, five minutes and five minutes for the feet and just five minutes for the lower limbs and so on. So he gradually adapted the patients to the sunlight. And in a way, this stands in full contrast to contemporary sun behavior when people do not accommodate to local sunlight conditions. So do you have any idea what I mean when I say this? People chatting uh, all over the planet um, with a jet-lagged brain. They go out to the beach with their jet-lagged skin because we learned from Michael that every cell type in our body has an own clock, which normally is synchronized by the central clock in our brain. And so when we feel jet-lagged upstairs, we are jet-lagged into the last single cell level. And um, I don't think that people are able <clears throat> to accommodate well if they cross too many timelines. Um, so you would need four weeks or even longer to uh, fully accommodate to the local sunlight condition if it's ever possible because for me Australia would be unbearable in some regions. But coming back to the boy, <clears throat> this is the same boy after two and a half years of skiing. This is the same boy as a young man still alive and kicking, with no signs of skin cancer, by the way. Rollier had nearly 50 years of experience with heliotherapy at the end of his medical career, and he specifically mentions in his last textbook that he never saw a skin cancer caused by heliotherapy. The opposite is true. He even treated skin cancer with sunlight Next step in phototherapy, sunlight against rickets. Here you can see the offspring of a single family affected by rickets, but in the lower pictures you can see it's not just a thing from the past. Do you have any idea how, <clears throat> how many percent of humans on planet Earth today suffer from tuberculosis in percent? Pardon? 30. 30%. So something must have gone wrong with the antibiotics treatment. And in areas where people were accommodated to higher levels of, of solar irradiation, they are wearing clothes in the meantime, so, are, so they are vitamin D deficient as well. You already saw Kurt Hulginski, this pediatric physician in Berlin, who discovered that there must be a substance circulating in the system which acts against rickets. So you had already seen the pictures, the x-rays from left and right hand. Only one side was treated, both sides did heal up. What the scientists found out in these days, it was not the full solar spectrum which was necessary to cure rickets, what they found out as well, that there is a shift in erythemal susceptibility. Um, so in March, in Europe, you would get an erythema much easier. So in a way, the, our 
body invites the sun to produce these solar adaptation processes already in early spring in order to have the full protection in summer. What you can see in July and August, the, the threshold is the lowest for developing an erythema. Do you think we could make this kind of experiment nowadays again? I think it's, hardly, it's, it's hard to reproduce something like that. So again, it's important to know what about, for example, circadian and seasonal rhythms from the scientists um, who described these in the past. This narrow band, um, spectral band in the UVB region between 290 and 320 nanometers is able to photosynthesize vitamin D in the outer layers of the skin. He was the guy, Adolf Windaus, who unlocked the secret of vitamin D synthesis, and he was rewarded, uh, rewarded with the Nobel Prize in 1928. He was the inventor of Vigantol, the first medical preparation, concentrated vitamin D, which could be, uh, could be administered to children, for example, and is administered to children even nowadays. Here you see a yeast irradiation system. The industry reacted um, quite swiftly and learned how to bring this into products, which would increase the saturation level in the system of the people in these days in order to fight rickets and tuberculosis. For example, here is um, an appliance for milk fortification, here you can see sun lamps for group treatment. This is the way to the pit hat bath flanked by quartz lamps. So the coal miners, they had to go like that, naked, of course. And so they got their uh, UVB radiation dose uh, every day, but not because they were um, staying healthier, um, they could produce much more when they had enough vitamin D in their system. And the UVB radiation and UVA radiation increases the, mm, yeah, they, they can, they could work much, much better under the, after the treatment with ultraviolet light. Here you can see a central artificial mountain sun and the artificial UV could replace real sunlight if not available, but most of the physicians working with phototherapy found that sunlight was superior compared to the artificial light. And this could be explained when you look at the spectral distribution here, the line spectrum, mostly from mercury, and here the solar spectrum, which is much more continuous and contains even more of the visible and longer wavelengths. Of the, of the spectrum. So the summary of the past is that history demonstrates that natural as well as artificial sunlight can act as a major interventional tool to prevent and heal devastating diseases when used with diligence. Our ancestors had the skills, knowledge, and technologies to deal with the sunlight in all climate regions of our planet. Some knowledge with, which uh, has... Uh, vanished in, in many of, of the human brains. 
Before the era of antibiotics, phototherapy was a state-of-the-art treatment in contemporary medicine, where sunlight, where natural sunlight was unavailable, artificial sunlight was successfully used to fill the gap. So, first part is over, second part present. Do you know this guy? Yeah, this is a modern sun god, and I definitely would like to visit him. Is it far from here? No. no. Yards. Pardon? 300 yards. 300 yards. I have to take an own photograph. So we are talking about the present times and about the wall between the sun and us. Living in the past meant suffering from diseases of darkness, but honestly, has anything changed? We learned how to suppress the most evident diseases of darkness. But many of us still suffer from a lack of sunlight. Here we see some bricks in the wall. Clothing, houses, workspaces, atmosphere, sunglasses, sunscreens, the change of the seasons, the time we have available to take care of our photonic exercises. So, now I will come to my objectives. Sunlight shifts blood into the skin, changes the anatomical structure of the skin, is a sensory stimulus, and so on. Shifts blood into the skin. I call this dermal pooling. Do you have any idea how many percent of the blood contingent you have in your system can be shifted in under extreme conditions into your skin? More than 50%. So when you think about all the capillaries in your outer layer of the skin, the skin is about 10 kilograms of massive, massive organ. Um, if you would um, experience a very, very, very severe sunburn and the blood would be shifted into the capillary layers, it would look like that. Normally you would have four liters in the inner body and about one liter in the outer skin. And after uh, an extreme light inflammation, you, this uh, could shift to 1.8 liters in the inner body and 3.2 liters in the outer skin. And this is a deadly situation, of course. The risk of circulatory shock already is existing if you lose about 0.5 liters. So infrared and UV uh, induces, if overdosed, thermal stress in your system. What does the infrared, the heat, thermal the overheating, and what is the mechanism of the body to, to cope with or to counteract the overheating is just increasing the blood circulation to bring the heat out of this layer. Um, ultraviolet overdosage increases the inflammatory processes, and both the overheating and the inflammation could, can be responsible for this massive uh, dermal pooling. And here, again, it's important that we have mechanisms, for example, in the hair follicle, which produce this POMC, pro-opiomelanocortin. Uh, this is a precursor molecule which can be sliced uh, and split into alpha-MSH, ACTH, uh, 
corticoids, um, beta endorphins, and so on. So even in a local system, our body is able to produce substances like ACTH, which are able to contract the capillaries to bring some of the blood back into the system. Nitric oxide is, again, a substance responsible for um, the shifting of blood into the outer layers. But there is another chromophore or molecule which can be activated by light, but in this case not by visible or ultraviolet light. This is uh, an activation of the molecular movement of the water molecule induced by red light and near so-called near-infrared light. And the near-infrared light um, acts like uh, on, on this water molecule. Together, near-infrared light and water molecules act like little stirrers, increasing the diffusion processes apart from the capillaries, apart from the vessels. So this is an example. When we activate the infrared lamp, the water molecule starts moving and substances mm, represented by this red spot are transported with a higher velocity. So the next topic, changes in anatomical structures of the, in the anatomical structure of the skin. When we look at the skin anatomy, this is a wonderful piece of art from Mother Nature. And when we look at some of the skin inhabitants. I want to look at the keratinocyte and at the melanocyte. Then we have a look at the epidermis. The epidermal layer is just a tenth of a millimeter, but it's the most potent UV filter. We already learned this from the presentation before. And the main population in the epidermis are keratinocytes and melanocytes. And here, may I introduce to you the keratinocytes or floor tilers and the melanocytes or the painter and boss. This is the guy on the right. The basal cell layer of the epidermis and the capillaries beneath are photoreactive. So if they are stimulated by ultraviolet light, then they start proliferating. But they do not only re react to ultraviolet light, they also absorb longer wavelengths. For example, the red and the infra near-infrared light, and they receive more energy from this and a kind of activation of the meta metabolical processes. So when you look at these little guys, you can see um, that they start cell division and so we have the next layer. This is the spinous layer of the epidermis, the next spinous layer after the next cell division, and so on and so on. And what can you see? The floor tilers, they, in a way, change. They change from floor tilers, from, from powerful persons, into these tiles. So they retract their own identity and transform into this kind of tile structure. And this is probably a possibility to teach children um, a little bit better what happens within the skin. And when we project the little figures into our epidermis, you can, we can see 
how it looks, in fact, on site. And the painter, as we already learned from Michael Hollick's presentation, he delivers melanosomes containing melanin to the floor tilers or the, the keratinocytes. And it's important that we become aware of the timeline of this mechanism, of the mechanism of solar acclimatization. Um, the, there is a kind of thickening um, process going on, and this, the main purpose of the thickening um, is the build-up of a natural sun protection by specifically changing the optical properties of the epidermis. In the center of the picture, we see two melanocytes serving 30 to 40 keratinocytes each with melanin pigment. Since only the deepest layer of keratinocytes receives melanosomes from the melanocytes, it takes several turnovers until the keratinocyte and corneocyte layers are saturated with melanin pigment. And these are the four weeks I was talking about earlier that, that it takes until you have the full protection built up under the local solar conditions. Besides the thickening of the corneal layer, which provides the most efficient UV absorption, melanin and DNA are the most potent ingredients for photoprotection. And since the keratinocytes in the spinal, spinous layer they have plenty of DNA in their cellular structure, but they don't need the DNA anymore. So this should be demonstrated by this kind of transformation process. The DNA, which is not needed anymore, acts as a sunscreen, as an additional sunscreen in addition to the melanin. And when we look at the natural and chemical sunscreens, we can see here DNA is able to transform 99.9% of the photonic energy from short wavelength photons directly into heat. So they have a very high photoconversion rate. They only produce 0.1% in, in the form of reactive oxygen species. And 99% are transformed into molecular movement. The same uh, is true for melanin. But when you look at the chemical sunscreens, those sunscreens which had been used 20 years ago, they have a photoconversion rate of just 10%, which means 90% of the photonic energy will be transformed into oxygen radicals, into free radicals. And even the latest sunscreens, they have a photoconversion rate of 80-81%. So if you use chemical sunscreens, they will penetrate into your skin and produce additional reactive oxygen species. So it might be better to use those sunscreens which just lie upon the skin. Um, the story of Siegfried um, in Germany, he took a bath in the blood from the dragon and there was a leaf remaining on his back and this did not this place was unprotected so he could be killed by a sword in this particular place and when you hear that this shimmering uh, non-cosmetic sun protection stuff you can put on which is shimmering uh, and it doesn't look good 
then you could tell your children about Siegfried and his story because if it shimmers, you can see where you put it on and you can protect yourself from unprotected areas which could develop a sunburn as well. So we talked about the light colors, the hyperkeratosis. We talked about the timeline of building um, the protection fully from winter skin into summer skin. It's four week, about four weeks. Sunlight is a sensory stimulus for the interoceptive system. What does this mean? So maybe we have time for a, a little experiment. What is the first sensory signal when sunlight shines on your skin? What's the first? Heat, yeah, it, it will become warm. And where does the heat come from? The main energy which can be felt as heat comes from the short wavelengths because the short wavelengths, they are absorbed by most all of the chromophores in the skin. And the red light and the near-infrared selectively only activates the chromophore water, activates metabolism, but does not shake um, non-selectively all the molecules. So the heat we feel in our skin mainly comes from the shorter wavelengths under solar exposition. So we are through with our experiment. And some facts onto the skin we have in one square uh, cubic centimeter of skin, six million cells, one meter blood vessels, four meters of nerve fibers. So the skin is filled up with sensors which tell us about the skin condition. And um, when we go out into the sun, the thermal and photochemical stimulus can be very pleasant and comfortable if we have the right dose, of course. Sunlight induces biochemical reactions via photosynthesis. Here we have some examples. Um, vitamin D, histamine, sulfhydryl groups are photosynthesized under the influence of, in this case, ultraviolet light. And the other part mm, tells us about the photo, photolysis, the photo-induced destruction, adrenaline, steroids, testosterone, estrogen, thyroid hormones, DNA, RNA can be decomposed under the influence of ultraviolet light. And this is what we call photolysis. When we think about one being one-tenth of a millimeter um, under the surface of the skin. In this area here, we have a lot of blood. And what do we find in this bloodstream? We find all the different hormones and all the different biochemical molecules which constantly flow through our blood vessels. And just to give you one example in terms of amplifying this slide... We have the vitamin D, progesterone, testosterone, growth hormone, cortisol. All these substances have absorption bands in the range of the solar spectrum. So if, if a biomolecule absorbs light, it just can be decomposed by it. And this 
happens just a tenth of a millimeter under the skin surface. Sunlight induces coordinated endocrine adaptation effects. It affects sympathetic and parasympathetic activity and is a major circadian and seasonal stimulus for the body clock. So when we look at this slide, we can see that the day starts with visible and infrared radiation, then we have UVA added, and at high noon, if the time is right in the year, if the season is right, we have additional UVB. And um, going back to darkness by taking apart the UVA and the visible and the infrared until it's dark again. And our system, via the eye and via the skin, detects the colors of the light in the environment in order to adapt the hormonal system to the specific needs of the time and place. So it's a different if we are sitting under the sun in the desert or if we are sitting under a leaf roof or under a tree somewhere in, in, a, in the woods. And the colors around us tell through the eye to our brain, to the midbrain, to the hormonal steering centers, what happens around us and what is to do in order to cope with this particular situation. So bright light means stress, and we have an additional receptor here in the retina which forms a non-visual signal um, under the influence of short wavelength or blue light. And this pathway, it's the ret retinal hypothalamical tract, directly connects to the nucleus suprachiasmaticus, which is the central body clock in our brain, and which um, has the task to synchronize all the other cellular body clocks in our system. And um, this uh, nucleus suprachiasmaticus, this central clock, is linked and connected to the main steering organs, the pituitary gland and the pineal gland, which, are, which represent an antagonistic system. And already the eye tells our system if it's day or night outside. And here you can see what kind of hormones are produced by the pituitary gland or by the pineal gland. These uh, signals through the eye program our vegetative and autonomous system in order to perform the uh, task which belong to the day, to the, to the time of the day. But anyway, it's, we don't stop at the circadian um, system. We have geographical characteristics on this planet and um, in the equatorial region. We have more or less the same temperature throughout the year. We have same day and night length. But um, if you are apart from um, the equator, then we have to adapt to, for example, 16 hours of day, we have adapted to only 8 hours of the day. This is the case in Germany, where I come from, in Heidelberg at the moment. And another important issue is the temperature. So in the equatorial region, you have 
homogeneous temperatures throughout the year. But um, in the northern latitudes, this is not the case. When we look at this moose, this moose here uh, in winter time loses up to 30% of its body mass, and he has to switch over his metabolism in order to compensate for this loss during summer times. He has, he has to fill up the loss. He has, like you, like you would change the characteristics of your heating appliance in the house during the winter, you have to heat the house, and during the summer, we have to dissipate heat. So, for example, our body needs much, much more water in summer times in order to cool down. And this is one of the reasons why I call the vitamin D, which is found again in this uh, slide, uh, produced over the skin, the vitamin D uh, reacts or regulates the organ function as well as the melatonin, which is the hormone of darkness. And uh, these both influences, <clears throat> they take care that we adapt to summer and winter day and night, and the seasonal stress hormone, vitamin D, um, this is a point I was thinking about uh, quite often. Do you think we still have winter conditions nowadays? Even in winter, when you are inside, you have 20 degrees of Celsius. You have the same conditions thermally throughout the whole year. And this is the reason why I advocate to keep summer levels of vitamin D throughout the year, as long as you are not exposed to extreme climate conditions like winter cold areas. So um, this is the hormone of darkness, and when we talk about sun and daylight, we have to talk about darkness as well. Not only the sun is important, take care that you have enough real darkness at night in order to keep the balance in your system. So we come to the future. And so what's the problem? The World Health Organization, the U.S. Surgeon General, and many dermatologists teach us everything about skin pathology, but forget to teach us the essential knowledge about skin physiology. How long does it take until you perceive your erythema reaction, and so on and so on. To classify an environmental factor like sunlight as a class 1 carcinogen creates a double bind in humans, especially in those who love the sun. To draw conclusions from petri dishes and experiments with nocturnal rodents and apply them to humans, this is a problem to extrapolate from isolated effects of artificial UV radiation to full-spectrum sunlight. This is a problem. To me, by the way, the classification as a carcinogen 1 is the same as if the World Health Organization would classify oxygen as a class 1 carcinogen just because it's the precursor molecule for reactive oxygen species or free radicals, which often are the starting point for cancerization in a cell. So, again, another double bind. We all should stop breathing. <laughs> Sunlight provides a full spectrum, 
Here we can see just several examples, the vitamin D, the UVA nitric oxide production, the visible part of the spectrum, what we can accept, expect from the visible radiation. This would cover another presentation, so I won't talk about this, but the activation of the water molecule in terms of increased diffusion processes. The infrared A, you can find hundreds of publications of scientific papers on wound healing, for example, on elevating levels of energy in the cell by um, increasing the concentration of ATP. This can be achieved with infrared A. So can you imagine what happens if you stress the cells using short wavelengths without providing energy and diffusion with the longer wavelengths? I think it's not the same if we just take out one part of the spectrum and think we can do it better than nature. Here, again, a chart which summarizes the effects of the different ranges in the optical spectrum. Risk factors for skin cancer, UV intoxication, overdosage, genetic predisposition regarding the skin type hormonal predisposition, including hormone replacement therapy, ingredients of skincare products, intake of photosensitizing drugs, other medications just like Viagra or tetracycline, contact with petrochemical products, environmental pollutants, electromagnetic radiation. Sometimes when I meditate over this complete, incomplete list, I wonder if the real culprits for the massive increase of skin cancer just try to hide behind the back of the sun and the tanning industry. Many insights come from experiments in a Petri dish performed with naked, unprotected cells. Other results come from epidemiological data. Here it is very difficult to find out which factors may also have played a role. For example, if you treat a sunburn with corticoids, the treatment may block important repair activities of the skin. If later in life certain problems occur, was it the sunburn itself or was it the treatment which stopped the repair mechanisms? I can't give you the answer, but I can raise the question. What can we do? We can disseminate solar knowledge and competence. We can give individualized counseling. We can provide time and space for regular photonic exercise. We can improve appliances for full-spectrum artificial insulation. We can, we have to revise scientific data for roots of misinterpretation and correct them. And we can share our knowledge and experience with like-minded people, just as we do today, tomorrow, and hopefully beyond. And Conclusions. Moderate and diligent sun exposure has positive effects and health benefits for most humans. There are some groups with a higher individual risk profile. We can help them to find out to which group they belong. 
And I would recommend the writer's experience in light therapy extending over more than 50 years, between 1876 and 1927, has convinced him that of the many physical agents which lend themselves to therapeutics, light is one of the most potent. As a prophylactic measure, light has no rival except fresh air, and fresh air and light are usually associated the lack of sunlight is probably the dominant factor in cloudy regions in raising the death rate from tuberculosis and degenerative disorder through prevention of normal development and the lowering of vital resistance. In the first edition of this work, Kellogg expressed the, expressed the opinion that the time would soon arrive when no hospital will be considered completely equipped which does not include in its outfit a full set of electric light appliances for therapeutic use. That day has dawned, and the interest in light therapy and light as a prophylactic agent has risen to such a high pitch of fervor that the day cannot be far distant when every college and every public school will be supplied with facilities for sunbaths and artificial sunlight supplied by arc lamps will be installed in schools, factories, office buildings, college dormitories, nurseries, and in well-furnished hotels and private homes. A large part of, of the civilized world is living in the shadow and becoming worn and weasoned in consequence. The time has fully come when the whole population should be stirred up to follow the injunction of holy writ to... Walk in the light. This is from Kellogg 100 years ago, and I think it's still a contemporary um, message to all of us. Thank you for your kind attention, and thank you especially for giving me You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.